Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For the past few weeks, we have been in a new sermon series that focuses on worship. In today's message, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer gives us five takeaways about worship from the Psalm 96 passage. When was the last time you sang a new song to the Lord? You have heard it said, no two people are alike. When it comes to worship, is there a specific formula that you have to follow in order to worship the Lord? If someone doesn't worship like you, are they really worshiping? Stick with us and let's find out what the Word of God shows us. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And here's Heath with today's message. Psalm chapter 96. You can just about flop your Bible open to the middle, so we made it easy on you today. Psalm 96. We're in the middle of a series called, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. It's a series on worship, and we are in our fourth message in that series on what worship is, and we are four messages in before we even begin to talk about what singing is and how singing is an expression of worship, and that's because worship is not principally singing. As we've talked about before, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's, our, it's the whole offering of our life to God. It's every response to God as a result of our contemplation of who he is, what he has done, and his great salvation that he has wrought in our heart. And so our response to God, whether it's serving, whether it's giving, whether it's singing, whether it's how we treat and love one another because he first loved us, these are all expressions of worship. But singing is absolutely an expression of worship. It's the most visible expression. And to try to figure out how that plays into worship, we're going to allow Psalm 96 to inform our thinking. Because when it comes to worship and singing, are there a few opinions out there? We all have our opinions, we have our preferences about singing, uh, but we'd like Psalm 96 to kind of inform our thinking. The book of Psalms itself is actually a collection of five songbooks inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to man that we might worship God. So this is their songbook. We still have uh, psalm books for singing today, often we'll call them a psalter, uh, but they're, they're expressions of our praise to God. Uh, Psalms incorporates as many as eight different human authors that the Holy Spirit has inspired to give us this music and this singing. And we find ourselves in Psalm 96 in what is often called an enthronement psalm. It's a psalm that is praising the eternal reign and glory of our King. And it calls all the world to come and express worship to this God. First thing we're going to look at in Psalm chapter 96 in verse 1 is that our worship is to be new, A, through a new message. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Okay, so when it says we need to sing to the Lord a new song, there's no great Hebrew study we're going to do here. New means new. Uh, new means new. It's fresh. It's New means different. And so new in the Bible has been, this very same word has been used to describe new kings, new carts, new wine, new wife, as in a freshly married person. And so new means new. And all over the Bible, we see this command here, not just in Psalm 96, to sing to the Lord a new song, something that is different, something that is new and fresh. Psalm 98 speaks of it. Psalm 144, Psalm 33, Psalm 149, Isaiah 42, Revelation 14. All of this commands us to sing to the Lord a new song, something different, unique, and fresh. Psalm 98, for example, verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, 
for he has done marvelous things. And so a new song was often given as a result, as a response to something that God did. Okay, And we see in uh, Isaiah 42.10, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because he shows himself mighty against his foes. Revelation 14.3, we have the 144,000. They're surrounding the throne and they're singing worship and praise to God. Why? Because God has rescued them. He has given them a great salvation. He has invited them to dwell with him. And as a result of that, uh, Psalm 96 believes that every encounter we have with God, everything good that God does, every victory he gives us should be celebrated with a new song. Several times the Old Testament records the creation of new songs. It was common after military victories and such. You would sing a song about what God has done. This, this would be a new song. In fact, Psalm 96 itself is actually an expression of worship to God for what he did in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. He gave them victory over the Philistines and the ark of God has come back home. This is all a work of God and so let's get all of our musicians together. together. Let's write a new song, an anthem of praise to God and let's offer it up to him so that other generations can hear and remember what God has done in our life. And so every time God acts in power, it is a res our response should be to compose a new song. It's sort of like in the Middle Ages, the old troubadours, they would go around and they would write poetry and songs to remember the great things that maybe people have done, great historical events, and that's how you remembered Historical events, not everybody was literate back then. And so what you would do to kind of implant into the minds this great historical event or to talk about the great deeds of a mighty person is you would create a song about them. And then people would go about their day, they'd be humming and singing this ballad, this story about what has taken place in history. Well, God believes that his activity, who he is and what he has done, is worthy of our remembering through the creation, the continual creation of new songs. What are these new songs? Uh, Derek Kidner, a renowned Old Testament scholar, said, a new song is not simply a piece newly composed, though it naturally includes such, but it is the response that will match the freshness of his mercies, which are new every morning. In other words, it's less about singing new styles of songs, and it's more about that every time God does something new in our life, something fresh in our life, he shows himself in a mighty way, we're aware of his salvation, his power. Our response should be, you know what? I, I want to compose something new to God, something fresh. It's not just going to be something uh, that I've always done. Now, there's nothing wrong with the older songs that we've sung, but a person who has a living, breathing, daily walk with God should constantly desire to be expressing that worship in new ways continuously. We see B here that that new message is, needs to be expressed from every culture. He says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord who? All the earth. Now, is all the earth the same? Does all the earth play different instruments? I've been around a lot of play, uh, different places around the earth. I'm here to tell you. Uh, musical styles and instrumentation is very, very different worldwide. But this command here, sing to the Lord a new song in all the earth, I think is where we can actually enter into a conversation about worship styles. The whole world doesn't sing and play instruments the same way that we do. And I think that's acceptable. God created these different cultures. But God here is commanding in Psalm 96 for every nation to express worship to God using their native instrumentation and their culture's way of expressing you know, praise and, and worship to God uh, that is suitable for that particular culture. 
Okay? He doesn't want all of our worship necessarily to look exactly the same. Now, for me as a little kid, I grew up in a rural, small town Iowa farming community. And this small town church, we, we only sang hymns from a hymn book. There was no PowerPoint, there was no projection. Uh, we had a, a piano and we had an organ. Okay, which I found out the hard way. The organist doesn't like it when kids play with the buttons on there, but I did it. Uh, but that's what we had. That's what every church had. You had your Christian flag, you had your American flag, you had your piano, you had your organ, and they, your piano was always on your left, your organ was always on your right. And, you know, and we had a worship leader who would you know, direct us like a choir. That's how we worshiped, and you stood motionless. I mean, it was, it was just kind of part of our worship culture. You did not move. And that's what I grew up in. Is that the only way to worship God? Now, some of us, we might think yes. Uh, but I'm telling you, I've been all over the world and worshiped with Christians in multiple different contexts, genuine, legitimate Christians. I've been in China in house churches. We're sitting in a living room. Sometimes we're sitting on a floor. And it's just a cappella, just people singing songs. And they tend to clap on the onbeat instead of the offbeat. And so it really throws me off. Is it wrong? No, it's, it's just different. Uh, I've been to uh, India where we were sitting on a mud-packed floor in a concrete block church. And just the, the songs that we did was just, hey, y'all bring instruments from home. Let's see what we put together. And so you had people, you know, they're bringing in little, uh, you know, little wind instruments that I've never seen before. They're bringing in things that they're just kind of banging and hitting on like a drum. Uh, some guy brought in a little battery-powered Casio keyboard with like 14 keys on it. And, and somehow this, this brother is just playing a song. And the tonality of their singing was, was much more... Uh, I hate to use this term, but shrill. I mean, it just, it, was, it really took me, took me aback. I was like, I've never heard singing like this before. Were they worshiping God? They were within their culture. Well, what about people that look like us? We all worship the same, don't we? I've been overseas worshiping with Scandinavian Christians. And uh, there was, around Christmas time, there was some great celebration that we did together and we were invited to come and so we participated in this and everybody's wearing these like white robes like they're angels. Uh, these guys were wearing these tall pointy white hats and some girl came in wearing a crown of candles on her head. And they were just singing songs I'd never heard of and, and it was a very different style of worship. Is that okay? Do people that look like me have to worship the same way? They don't. God is worshiped by all nations of the earth and commands for us to use whatever it is that we have to sing praise to the Lord, to sing new songs to the newness of God's grace given the, cultures, uh, the culture that we come from. And I think we can acknowledge that it's okay that people worship God, sometimes using even different new songs that we've never heard of or even different styles. Now, the problem is sometimes we can... Our flesh, we like to be comfortable. We like to sing songs that we know. We like to sing things that are familiar. That way it doesn't put me out of kind of my comfort zone in the worship of God. And so sometimes you'll hear in church, well, I hate all this new music. Have you ever heard that? You've never heard that. I have, but you, you probably never heard people say they don't like new music. Or they, you know, I hate these new styles. I don't like this instrument. I don't like that. Um, I even heard once in a church that we don't play canned music in here. That somehow it was dishonoring to God if you played something from a CD or a tape Remember tapes? Uh, if you played it from that, somehow it didn't worship God. It had to be live or God is not honored by that. Is that true? Is that, is that in the Bible here? Did I miss that one? It's not in there. But sometimes we hear that, you know, and people say, well, we just need to go back to the old hymns. We don't need any new songs. Well, I have to ask you, how far back do you want to go? You know, the oldest recorded hymn that, that, uh, that is on record, the oldest recorded melody, was found on a clay tablet with reeds. You remember in world history, they taught you about cuneiform, you know, and they're like tapping these things in. Well, we found a song. The oldest, earliest recorded hymn sounded something like this. 
Did that sound anything like our worship today? Nothing. Is that musical style okay? Could it theoretically be used in a church somewhere? Nobody wants to say yes. Uh, nobody wants to get the elbow thrown, okay? Uh, but but that's, sometimes that's how we feel. You know, if you want to go far back, that's the earliest recorded melody that we have, okay? And, you know, so we go, well, we're not necessarily that far back. We're talking about Western worship. We're, you know, Western America, Western, Western civilization, Western worship. Well, if we want to go back to a, a, another period, we can go back to uh, the, the Roman days of the Roman Catholic Church and some of their singing. And, and sometimes they would sing chants that sounded like this. Now, you're going to notice as we listen to songs like that, uh, I think it's very beautiful myself. I like it. But would you find that difficult to sing along? You would because there's something characteristic of Gregorian chant that it didn't have always a, a noticeable, predictable rhyme and meter to it. Often the songs were very complicated to sing, which is in their minds they felt greater worshiped God because this is a difficult song. It shouldn't be something that's easy for you and I, average people, to sing. It should be something that only these professional singers can sing to God. Well, Martin Luther had a problem with that. He wanted uh, to make sure that everybody could worship and sing, and he's trying to put in music uh, into the tunes that people know, into uh, rhythms and things that people would fully understand and be able to enjoy. But back then, it was believed that there, there was such a legalism, even with their music, that you could only honor God with uh, certain musical styles and things. The problem is the polyphony of the Middle Ages came in, and you got Martin Luther doing his thing, and it upset the religious leaders. They believed that some chords and things were, were too sensual in nature, just that they, they appealed to the senses, in other words. They were too enjoyable. And so melodic intervals had to be improved by a council at one time. It, it said that uh, some musical skips were considered okay, fourths and fifths, but thirds and sixths were considered too enjoyable, too basic, too sensory, too easy for just the average person to sing along. And so, of course, you can't worship God in that way. Now, where's that in the Bible? Somewhere around First Nathaniel, right here. Some of y'all thumbing for that book right now? You didn't go to VBS as a kid, did you? Uh, it's not in the Bible, okay? There's nothing about those kind of musical skips and, and certain chords that honor God, certain instruments that honored God, but that doesn't stop some people from teaching that. In fact, I've been in multiple different Christian communities that have taught me all kinds of things about music, the kind of music that honors God, but it wasn't necessarily from the Bible. I had a teacher one time tell me, uh, you cannot use a saxophone to worship God. I mean, that just sounds kind of silly. It's just an instrument, right? And we just, immediately, I shot my hand up, like, this sounds crazy. Where is he getting this? Where in the Bible is that? And he just said, well, you know, when you watch movies and a bad scene comes on the TV, what instrument are they playing? A saxophone. I rest my case. Now, none of us were agreeing with that line of logic. All we're thinking is, Professor, what are you watching on TV? You know, but that's what he taught. He taught that you can't hold a, a microphone in your hand. It has to be on a stand. You have to kind of stand there. You have to stand there rigidly with this mark because you can't hold it. Why? It's just some human standard. Uh, I was taught in a class one time uh, in this Christian conference I was a part of. They taught in this Christian conference that uh, syncopated rhythms are too enjoyable, and therefore they are, much like the Roman Catholic Church here, uh, they're too enjoyable, therefore they're wrong. They're sinful. They shouldn't be used in church. You know, you have kind of a straight beat, right? 
A syncopated rhythm is like, bum, 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 bum. Okay, so it doesn't just follow a straight beat, and they felt that was wicked. I told Theron, I said, should we get rid of syncopated rhythms here at Unity Baptist Church? He said, if you do, I'll leave. You know? So, it, but we recognize that this is kind of silly, but men have always had preferences in their musical styles, and we have certain feelings that we have in our heart as to what honors God and what doesn't, and it's okay to have our preferences. Preferences are okay. What, when it becomes a problem is we begin to dogmatize our preferences. Like in Matthew 59, when Jesus says, they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, my preference now, I'm gonna dogmatize it. How I prefer to apply the word of God and to worship God, you have to do it the same way now. And that's where we get into trouble as a church, where I say that what I believe about my preferences and how I express worship to God now has to be your way too. You've got to do things my way. And that's a, that's a danger for the church because then we start to fight over musical styles. So the music wars did not start with the modern church, did not start anywhere in the 1900s. It goes way back. Are people still arguing over what kind of music honors God today? Yeah, I'm sure you've never run into that, but you know, theoretically it happens in certain churches. People argue over their musical preferences, you know, and a lot of times there can be kind of a culture war that takes place and the battleground is our music. You know, sometimes the younger people are like, I don't want to go to a church where they're just singing all them old hymns, you know, and I want, I, I want to dim the lights, I want the laser lights and the fog machines and I want to be, I want to feel excited and if I don't feel excited, I'm not going to go to that church. And then you got some older folks who are like, I don't, I don't care a bit for that kind of worship. We need to go back to the old hymns. In fact, we don't even need this projector anymore. We didn't need a projector growing up. We don't need a projector today. I just, uh, we need to do the old hymns, and when we sing the hymns, we need to sing every single verse. You know, and at times, we can allow our preferences to create a culture war within the church, can't we? Is a church just supposed to be divided amongst young churches and old churches? Are we supposed to have churches with just old people and churches with younger people? I would argue we don't. In fact, you, if you do that, you can't have a Titus II model church where it says older men are to be teaching the younger men. Older women are to be teaching the younger women. We can't have that unless we agree to come together to forbear one another in love. How do we get over the music war? We have to agree that worship, first of all, isn't about me. Worship isn't about pleasing myself. We don't come to church and go, I'm gonna go to this church based upon how the worship pleases me. When we sing, is the music principally about pleasing me? Careful, it's not, it's not about what I like. What is music principally for when we express it in worship? Who's it to? It's to God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves: is it biblical? Does it honor God? Is God pleased? Not am I pleased, but is God pleased? And so the answer to the culture wars over music is found in Philippians chapter two. We just can't be selfish. We can't make everything in the church that which pleases me. We have to ask, does it please God and is it good for the body? Philippians chapter two, verse two says, do nothing including music. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. In other words, that even in music, that it's not just about my preferences, okay? Let's make sure this worships God and let's forbear one another. That's why I'm very grateful that Theron actually is very conscientious to try to include both older and newer music together in a single worship service, why? We have older and newer saints worshiping together in the same building. And how we get over this musical culture war is this. We choose that when we come to church, I won't be selfish. Everything doesn't have to please me. 
I don't have to like every instrument. I don't have to ever like every song. I don't have to know every song because if you know every song, what can we not do? Sing to the Lord a new song. Wasn't that commanded somewhere in the Bible? Uh, Psalm 96 or somewhere, a few other places. And so we need to make sure we are not just trying to impress our style of worship onto somebody else. And, we, and that's our natural tendency of humans, isn't it? We, even when I was, uh, we served overseas for several years and when we were touring around uh, Yunnan province, we worked in there with uh, Chinese Christians and I was in the Tibetan plateau and we were traveling through an area called Duchin and we found a small village called Sujong. And in Sujong village, it really stood out to me. It was one of the most memorable village visits that I ever had. And the reason was because something stood out, out of place. The building you see before you is Sujong village and that building is out of place. You look around you, you see all these kind of native Chinese buildings. And then all of a sudden you've got something that looks remarkably like a Western style cathedral that was imported in. And when, so we came in there, we started talking to some of the local friends who were there and they discovered that we're Christians and they got very excited. And they said, we've got to show you our church. And they come in and evidently many years before there's a Catholic missionary come in and he had, he had imported Western Christianity into China and said, this is how you need to worship God. And so they built a, a Western style monastery looking cathedral uh, you walk inside it's set up with pews like we would see in a western church you had your piano and organ type of thing he imported these guys uh, they started taking me on a tour of the church and they're showing me the wall that has these old black and white pictures of the missionary that came in and he's being carried in on a litter you know what I'm talking about the, the seats that have poles on them and people are carrying you and so the missionary comes in being carried in on a litter to the church uh, and he's bringing in Western church. He's bringing in Western style seating, Western style music, Western songs, because how can you worship God unless you worship God my way? Now we hear that and we see that. We think that's so absurd. Bring the gospel in, bring the word of God in. Let the Chinese worship the Lord, all the earth. Let them worship within their culture and their context and their framework. But sometimes we have a hard time doing that because we believe that only the way that I worship God is an acceptable way to worship God because that's how I worship him. So it has to be the best. But I think it's healthy for us to acknowledge whether you're in China or whether you're in the United States, is it okay that some people worship differently than us? It is okay. Okay. Now, I'm not advocating every style of worship. I'm not saying that we're going to have trapeze artists, you know, in here next Sunday. I'm not saying we're going to bring in dancing bears, that we're going to become a concert church, that we're going to run up and down the aisle waving flags and finger painting to the Lord. I'm not advocating that. What I'm saying is that there's a certain measure of grace that we have with one another, that we are patient with one another. Um, let's look at number two here. Music is instructive. Does music preach a message to our hearts? It absolutely does preach a message to our hearts. It says in verse two, sing to the Lord and bless his name. Bless means to kneel, to acknowledge the truth of somebody, to, to uh, approve of that. He says, tell of his salvation day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. And this is all done in the context, verse 2, of singing. Our singing blesses his name. Our singing to God declares his glory among the nations. And so our music, we acknowledge here, music always has a message. 
All music that we have is driving towards something. Even instrumental music, does that carry a certain message with it? You ever try to watch a movie that didn't have the music track behind it? It just feels weird, doesn't feel right. Like the music sort of instructs us, this is how you should be feeling right now. The music can be kind of scary or it can be kind of uh, soothing or it can be happy and rejoicing. It can be triumphant in a march. And so the music preaches a message, whether through the words or even through the instrumentation itself, it makes us feel a certain way. That's why when my son, sometimes he'll try to drag me out to lift weights in the garage. I know I don't look like a weightlifter, and it's because I'm not. But he'll drag me out there trying to convince me to lift weights, and when he does, he wants to listen to a certain kind of music, uh, which by the way, my son is here today and happens to have our grandbaby, I have pictures. He'll get me out in the garage and he'll say, Dad, we need to lift weights. And he'll put on some music with a driving beat because it influences his heart to lift weights. And he'll, he'll come in and he'll say, all right, let's get it. I don't know what it is, but he got it and I didn't. <laughs> and he, but that music, it's, it's influencing his heart towards something. And he's moving, and he's, just, he's getting angry with this weights. Uh, or there's times more like, this is, how, this is where I live. You know, I'll come home from a long day, a difficult week, and Amber and I, we will chill out at the end of the night, we'll relax to a nice dinner, and I will talk to my Amazon speaker, and I will tell her, Alexa, play some uh, light instrumental Christmas, or Alexa, play Bing Crosby Christmas. Bing's the voice of Christmas. And whenever I hear Bing just over there crooning, you know, and I'm just hearing him, he's preaching a message to my heart, everything's okay, you can relax now, you can calm down, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And I'm just, music is preaching a message to my heart and I just feel good. And so we have to understand that all music has an intention behind it. It's preaching a message to us. We just have to ask ourselves, what message is my music preaching to me? Okay, then in verse here, it says that our music is to bless the name of God. It's to declare his worth and his greatness. It's to declare his glory. This idea is also repeated in New Testament verses like Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, preaches a similar message. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, in what way does the word of Christ infiltrate every part of my life? It says, teaching one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And so in the context of letting the word of God dwell in us richly and admonishing one another, that word admonish just means to place into the mind of somebody, that you're taking a truth and a concept that people need to know and you're putting it into their head. In context, he says, we are admonishing one another even through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That our music has a message. I preach to you, you know, a lot of you, once a week on a Sunday morning. But all throughout the week, I would argue every day on the way to work, while you're cleaning, even while you're working, some of you, you've got music playing in the background. I, you, we need to ask ourselves the question, what message is that music preaching to me? What message is being driven through that? That will influence our heart as much as any sermon will. And so he says here that we admonish one another, we place thoughts into our minds through singing, through, he calls it psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there is some scholarly debate as to what constitutes a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song, or are they the same thing? Um, I think one thing we can agree on is a psalm is a psalm. 
okay? It's, it's scripture set to music. You know, we, we, like I said earlier, we have these psalters today, may not be in your pew there, but you know, these, we, people would sing these psalms and some of our modern worship songs, they will still sing their, and their lyrics come directly from the psalms. That is a psalm. A hymn, a hymn, if you ask Theron what a hymn is, he'll give you some technical music different definition. It's a strophic song. Does that strophic really mean much to you? Okay, so he had to explain that. So it basically means that it's, it's these repeated melodies through these verses of songs, like many of our hymns are laid out here today. The Greek language here in Colossians 3.16, a hymn is a song which specifically is extolling God, his, his greatness and who he is. Hymns like immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, and hid from our eyes. That would be a hymn. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, my song will rise to you. So that's a hymn, okay? These songs of praise to God in these strophic ways. Uh, and then you have a spiritual song. There's some debate about what that is. Remember, a spiritual worship that we talked about is arising from within the spirit of a person. It's not just external I don't just come to church and mechanically go through the motions of robotic worship. It's, it's spiritual. And so a spiritual song, it's been thought, that it's something that's arising from within the spirit of a man. Uh, often it's been understood that these were likely extemporaneous songs, just kind of impromptu. They just come up and, and they're just they're singing together, they're making melody. Back then, people didn't listen to music as much, as much as they actually played it and sang it. And so most people, you know, a lot of people, they'd learn instruments of various kinds. And so the church would sing these songs and because they were spiritual arising from within their life and their testimony with God would testify to the greatness of what God has done for them. And so we are to use music, however you see psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we are to use music uh, to influence our hearts, to admonish us, to place the, spirit, the spiritual words of the Bible, to place it into our minds so that we can think about who God is and what he has done in our life. That's what music is meant to do. It's instructive. It moves us and it informs us. Uh, we see number three here that music expresses the worthiness of God. God is worthy. Our music testifies to that. Verse four, <clears throat> he says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all other gods. For is a word that indicates <clears throat> why, <clears throat> excuse me, why do we sing to the Lord? He has just said, tell of his salvation and declare his glory. Why? For or because, for this reason, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so our worship, if nothing else, the motivation behind this worship is that we wish to, we talked about uh, last week, we want to, like Mary in her Magnificat, we want to magnify the Lord. We want to make him bigger. We want to blow it up. Hey, you need to see all these details about God. You see God from a mile away. You don't, you don't really understand who he is. That's not very impressive to you yet. Let me blow God up for you. Let me show you what he's really like. Let me tell you about his greatness. Let me tell you about what God has done for me, what he's done for each of us. And so she, we magnify God in that. Notice also while we're worshiping, uh, it says... The great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It says he is to be feared above all other gods. That in our worship, it's a declaration of allegiance. Every time we sing a worship song here in a worship service, it's a pledge of allegiance to God. He's our God, nobody else is. He is to be praised above all other gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. He's the one true God. He's the one that made everything. All these other gods, yes, there are a lot of other people that worship a lot of other little gods. We need to understand that they are worthless. 
Now it says worthless idols in our Bible, but in the Hebrew, it's just a single word. The word idol itself bears in the concept of something that is valueless. It's worthless. You may choose to worship someone other than Jesus, but just understand that when you do, it's worthless. Bible doesn't say here, all roads you know, lead to Rome. Every, whatever path you choose to God is your path. The Bible doesn't say you can pick how you approach God. You get to choose what is true. The Bible asks us to submit to the truth of God that's already revealed. Sort of like the Apostle Paul when he was preaching in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, basically, the times of your former ignorance, when you didn't know who the true God was, God winked at. He let it go. In his forbearance, he let it happen. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent change their mind about who God is. Now, who is all men everywhere? That's us here in America. That's people in China. He commands them to repent. People in Russia, they're to repent. People in India are to repent and turn from their false gods to the one true God. You see, because there's only one God that created all the heavens and the earth. And God calls us to repent of our gods and to put our trust in him. He says, after all, they are worthless gods. In other words, you may like idols because it's something you can control and you can manipulate it. You may like your idol because your idol doesn't judge you. You may like your idol because your idol doesn't have any moral demands of your life. But when you need them, they're not gonna be there for you. They're worthless. So we may not like a God that morally judges us, but he does. Sorry, he does. Uh, we may not look at God who has moral demands upon our life and calls us to a standard of holiness like him, but he does. But that God is also powerful. That God is also the one who saves. That God is the one who transforms, the God who answers prayers, and the God to whom we will give an account, and the God who has created all things and will again create the new heavens and the new earth where we will live eternally. And so friends, I'm gonna bow my knee and sing in my praises of allegiance to him. So we express our, in our worship that only God is to be worshiped. Music has often been described accurately as worship. We're declaring the worthiness of God. In fact, uh, a professor at Dallas Seminary at one time, a guy named Ronald Allen said, worship is an active response to God whereby we declare his worth. And that's exactly what Psalm 96 is doing right here. It's declaring the worthiness of God. Why should we worship your God? Well, he created all things. Why should we worship your God? It says he dwells in splendor, and it says in majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Splendor is a word that implies the idea of life and vigor. Our God isn't just powerful, he is the very source of life. Where did earth get its life? Why do plants grow? Why do animals grow? Why do you and I grow? It's because of the life that, is, that God has given to us. He breathed into man the breath of life. Our spiritual life also comes from him. He breathes into us the breath of spiritual life. And so that's why Colossians 3 says that we are not to be focusing on the things of earth, but the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, will appear with him. And so we need to understand that God is the very source of all life that we have. And so we offer him praise because he is our splendor. He is our source of life. He, he says majesty is before him, strength and beauty. Majesty here refers to God's glory. And glory is a difficult word to really just succinctly describe. What is God's glory? God's glory is who he is. 
God's glory is uh, his holiness, his greatness, his nature, his power, his beauty. Uh, it's the manifestation of his power. It's all the, the presence of God that, that emanates from him. When God does something, it's a manifestation of his glory. Romans 6 talks about how Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It means through an act of the power of God. And so God's glory is all that which proceeds from him. Everything that God does is, a, is an expression of his glory, his greatness, his power, and his beauty. And so we are to worship him in his glory. John 1.14 says this glory also is attributed to Jesus. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, not just any glory, but the glory as of the only Son of the Father full of grace and truth. Now that presents a problem for you if you don't believe that Jesus is fully God. What does the Bible tell us? God says his glory he will not share with anybody else. Is that in Isaiah 42, 8? He will not share his glory with anybody else. So if God is sharing his glory with Jesus, what does it say about Jesus? That he is fully God. He is fully God in as much as the Father is God. God shares his glory with him. And that is why we worship Jesus Christ. We don't just honor him. We don't just reverence him. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good role model. Jesus is God. And in his glory, we worship him. Number four, we see that worship is commanded of all people. Psalm 96, it kind of reads like a town crier. You know what I'm saying? You know, long before they had the internet and TV and all kinds of other uh, announcements and things, you'd have your town crier. He would be sent from the king with a message. He would take his position in the center of town and he would call attention to all the people. I've got a message from the king. You need to listen to this. This is a command from the king for all of you to follow. And that's kind of how Psalm 96 reads. You know, sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. And even down here in verse 7, he commands us as the town crier. He's commanding us to give God something. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Notice that none of that was optional. None of that ascribing business is optional. This is a command. All men everywhere, all the earth is to sing to the Lord a new song. All the earth is to ascribe something, several different things to God. Now this word ascribe here means that we possess something in our possession. We hold it, we have control of it, but we willingly give it over to somebody else. Ascribe means we hand something over to somebody else. Several times in the Bible, Genesis 29, it referred to the handing over of a wife, okay? That's going from father's family to this new family, to this man. Uh, in Ruth 3, it describes the handing over of a garment. I have this clothing in my hand. I'm handing it over to somebody. Zechariah chapter 11 talks about handing over money that was due to somebody else. And so three times in this passage here, in our worship, we are ascribing things to God. Things that are within our possession, we could contain it for ourselves. but in worship, we willingly offer it up to God as our vassal, as a vassal to him as our Lord. We give it back to him, things that belong to him. He says, we ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We talked about what God's glory is, okay? So humans can sometimes try to steal glory for themselves. I won't recommend it. Herod kept, you know, they said, people shouted at him in the New Testament, you know, the voice of a God and not a man. And he received that glory for himself. And it says, God ate him up with worms. You don't want to steal God's glory. 
And so we aren't here on earth to try to gather glory for myself, to make sure that everybody likes me, everybody speaks highly of me, everybody thinks greatly of me. That glory belongs to God alone. We, we ascribe to him, we give that over to God. My desire to be praised, my desire to be respected, my desire to be looked up to, I'm giving it over to the Lord. All that matters is that people think highly of my God, not just me. And we ascribe to him our strength. Strength is something that we can reserve for ourselves. I'm just going to work for that which benefits me, improves my standard of living. Or we can take our strength and we can serve the Lord in the context of a church. We can serve the Lord uh, you know, feeding people a meal or giving out the gospel. There's many different ways that we use our energies for him. We use our spiritual gifts to serve him. But Psalm 96 says that we are to ascribe to God all these things. And he also says in our ascribing, giving over to the Lord things that belong to him, what does he say? In verse eight, as we ascribe, Lord, the glory due his name, it says we also bring an offering and come to his courts. When you would come into the court of a king, whether it's a king of your land or a king that has conquered your land, you're a, a vassal state to him. When you would appear before the king or some rightful Lord who has a rule over your life, you would bring him gifts. You didn't just show up empty handed. And so you would bring him and you would give him honor and glory by offering him gifts. And so Psalm 96 says, even as a part of our worship, what are we doing to God? We are bringing him offerings, okay? It doesn't say exactly how much or what or how often, but it says from our heart, we should be willingly offering, ascribing, giving God his due in our life. We give over to the Lord. And that is a part of our worship. It recognizes his worthiness. It recognizes that all the money that we have didn't just come because I'm a really clever guy didn't come because I'm just a hard worker. God gave me life. God gave me strength. And my, my very eternal life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I'm going to ascribe to him that which is due. Verse 10 says, again, a command to all people, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. So again, he's commanding for the whole world to worship God and to give him what he is worth. And so we, we understand that, and we kind of wish the whole world worshiped Jesus like we do. But I just want to ask you this. Let's, let's forget about India and China and Russia, whether or not they're worshiping God tonight. Let's ask ourselves, do you worship God? Do you give over to God what he asks for? Do you give over? Do you ascribe glory to his name, or do you retain glory for yourself? Do you ascribe God your strength, or do you reserve all your strength just for you? Do you ascribe to God your time? Do you ascribe to God the wealth that he has entrusted to you? Do you worship? And notice I didn't ask you, do you come to church? Can you come to church and not worship? We'll do it all the time. Come to church and not worship. They come to church for various different reasons. They come to church maybe because they like the people, they like the social club, maybe they like the potluck that we're having tonight. Okay? Maybe they like the fellowship that we have and the food that we enjoy. Uh, but maybe on a Sunday morning, they didn't much come to worship. They didn't come to uh, with the intention of engaging with the eternal God and offering him, ascribing to him, giving him of our strength, giving him of our resources, giving of him of our, our voice of praise. They're just doing a religious deed, the mechanical worship we talked about a couple weeks back. I pray that we've come here to worship God, to ascribe, to give over to him what is due. And finally here, we're gonna look at emotions are a byproduct of true worship, a byproduct. Thus far in the book of Psalms, it lays itself out as a really good example of what worship is. We're singing to the Lord a new song in response to what he has done. We're blessing his name. We're declaring his glory. We're talking about who he is. We're contemplating what he has done, his splendor and majesty, his strength and his beauty. 
We're calling others to worship God together with us. And in the process of doing this, we find ourselves in verses, you know, 11 and following. And that God feels that the contemplation of who God is, the contemplation of what God has done, is a reason for joy. Look at the words that, that we've seen here in verse 11. See if you can find words that sound, I don't know, reminiscently joyful. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes and he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. You'll see here that this joy is initially attributed to nature. Well, I'm off the hook. I don't need to exult or rejoice in God. No, this is just a beautiful poetic expression of the entirety of the earth uh, desiring to praise and worship God together. God, man isn't just immediately removed from this. We are also to experience this joy, and it's supposed to be far-reaching. This whole world and all that is in it is supposed to experience these things as a byproduct of our worship of the one true God. He says that we are to be glad. It's a state of being. It, the word actually means that it's a state of agitation, not in a, like a nervous way, but just you're, you're nervously excited. You come home, some of y'all have one of those kinds of dogs, don't you? You know, you've been gone all day, but you are the hand that feeds this animal. You are the one who puts him in those goofy sweaters. You're the one who may or may not have a gift wrapped under the tree for said animal. Uh, and when you come home, how does that animal feel? He feels glad, doesn't he? You, some of you got one of these vibrating dogs. You know, they're just so nervous, full of anticipation of you because he's so excited because of all that you are and all that you represent, and you've come home. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, this is the term that Psalm 96 uses to describe that internal state of agitation and excitement about the knowledge and the revelation of who God is and what he's about to do. Then he, uh, it's, a, it's a term that is also used in 1 Samuel 11 of the men who were at Jabesh Gilead who were saved when Saul rescued them from the Ammonites. How do you feel when you get rescued from certain doom? You're gonna perish on the battlefield and in comes Saul and he rescues you. It says they were glad. They were agitated with joy. How would you you'd be jumping up and down, raising your sword in the air, shouting, cheering. You're excited about this news. It also says rejoice. Let the earth rejoice. Isaiah 9.3, this word rejoice is also used of a group of people who are, they are victorious in battle and they are dividing up the spoils. So you got men running their fingers through the gold and they're excited and they're wearing crowns on their head and they're shouting and they're cheering. Look at all this that we brought in. You know, glory to God, we're so happy. Okay, this is rejoicing. Uh, then there's a word exult. E-X-U-L-T. We don't use that word often. Your children exult on Christmas morning. Uh, but we don't often think of ourselves as exulting as adults. We're mature. <laughs> we don't get that excited anymore. Uh, but here, Psalm 96 feels that even adults have a cause for exultation. Exult, we looked at a little bit last week. It's a word that means jubilant. It means that you have so much energy of excitement about something good that has happened that it is coming out in an expressful, bodily way. You can't get out from it. They're jumping up and down. It's kids on Christmas morning. That in your worship, that emotions will follow true worship. That when you really understand who God is, can you really contain that? 
that there's an excitement about God. He's not something dead and lifeless to us. God isn't just a worship service and a set of doctrines that we follow, but there is a true God that we are worshiping behind the Bible. And we are exulting in him. Exulting is a term that was used in 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. We talked last week about David. Remember, the ark of God comes back home and there's exulting going on. And David, uh, it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. So David didn't just dance a little bit before the Lord in his worship of God. It says he did it with all his might. He held nothing back. He didn't care what anybody thought of him. In fact, in that passage we read that he laid aside his kingly garments. It didn't mean that David was dressed immodestly, by the way. It just means that he didn't feel he needed to be wearing his kingly garments. He's just gonna be one of the people today. I'm just an average Joe today because standing before God, my rank of king has no more, gives me no greater place before God than you as some commoner. I'm just one of you guys exulting. And he's, I don't know what it looked like, but you look at Jewish messianic dancing. He's, he's dancing, it says, with all his might, this is energetic. This is the word exult. Now you remember in that story, was there somebody that did not like the exulting of David? Somebody didn't like David getting that excited about who God is. There was somebody in that story, remember? His wife, Michael, the woman with a man's name. Michael. More importantly, she was the daughter of Saul. And so she had a bit of a reputation. She grew up with respect. She grew up with honor. She grew up with riches. And she sees the king of the entire nation lowering himself to the level of a, of a peasant. You're just one of the people now. And it says in 2 Samuel eleven sixteen that she despised him for this. She's criticizing his worship. She is more concerned that David, uh, David's reputation be honored than the reputation of God be glorified. And so she despised him. She highly disliked him. What do you do with people who won't join in the worship of God? They're just criticizing others who are ascribing worship to God. You know, they're kind of like, you ever watch the old Muppet Show? Does that date me? Y'all kids know what Muppet Show is today. Uh, you ever watch Muppet Show and you got Statler and Waldorf? That's the names of the two old men sitting up in the booth, right? And we got folks who are part of the church, you know, they're, we're worshiping God, we're engaging with God, we're thinking only about God. It's like the Muppets on stage, Kermit's doing his thing, Fozzie's doing his thing, you got an animal on the drums, you got all these crazy things, they're, they're trying to get the show moving forward, but you got these two old men up in the booth, and they're just, ah, 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 this is really dumb, you know? And they're making fun of the show, they're criticizing the show, they're scorning the show. Do we ever have any Statlers and Waldorfs in church? You know, or there, oh, that came quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, where you have some people and their heart is just thinking about God and they're exulting and they're joyful, they're happy and they're excited and God forbid, they may raise a hand and worship to God, you know, and then we got Statler over here going, wow, where's that happening? What are they doing that for? You know, and, and we, rather than focusing on ascribing worth to God ourselves, we've focused our energies like Michael on criticizing the people of God who are trying to worship him with all their might. If you don't want to worship God that way, feel free not to. It's okay. Nobody's going to criticize you. You're not jumping up and down with excitement. You're not waving flags. Nobody's going to criticize that. But at the same time, we don't criticize those whose hearts are so full of worship of God that the worship of God has resulted in a joyful, exuberant spirit to the Lord. Let them worship God. How did David respond to Michael after her criticism? He said in uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 21, uh, and David said to Michael... You want to talk about position? He says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father 
and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. In other words, your dad got full of himself. He wasn't going to worship God. I will. And God took him out. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. He says, and listen to this. He really gives it to her here. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. This is just a, it's even more harsh term than what she used of him. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, these common people, he says, but the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. In other words, I care far more about people who are genuinely worshiping God than those who are near me who have no interest in rejoicing in who God is. I'm more concerned about these common people. And after that, look, the Bible says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. In other words, have fun living in the attic. <laughs> you know? Does that mean that David cut her off? Does that mean that God simply closed her womb? We don't know. What we do know is that this is a response that God included in Scripture as a condemnation of her criticism of the worship of others that she was going to bear no fruit, that she was under the condemnation of God. And so moral of the story is this. You worship God. Don't worry if other people are worshiping God. Don't worry that other people worship God the way you worship God. You worship God from your heart. And it's okay to have an emotional feeling related to your worship. But I would say, understand where emotions come into play in worship. If you're coming to a worship service and your primary goal is to experience a feeling, you've come with the wrong intention. If your primary purpose is, I really feel down, I just want to come to church and get all excited and revved up, and I just want to start out just getting all excited and jumping up and down like I'm at a concert, you've come to church for the wrong reason. If our whole goal in our worship is to feel enjoyment and excitement purely, then we have come to worship not so much God, but ourselves. I want to make myself feel good. Does that mean that, that emotions have no place in worship? Absolutely not. But we need to understand the placement of the worship. The Psalm 96 and the way it progresses, we're declaring the worth of God. We're contemplating who he is. We are talking about his greatness and the deeds of God. And as a result, at the very end of the Psalm, the Bible calls us to rejoice and to be glad and to exult in God. That's where emotions belong. They are the caboose of the worship train. Don't put the caboose ahead of the engine. It's the caboose of the worship train. First, focus your minds. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, admonishing, placing into the mind psalms, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then, end of Psalm 96, now here's the caboose coming up with the emotions. I am now overwhelmed with the presence of God and who he is and what he has done that I have this grand sense of gladness and joy and rejoicing and exultation. That's where it belongs. But it does belong in worship. God doesn't call us to be just a bunch of crusty Christians who just sing a song, ha, 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 well, that was unmoving to me. And I sit down, oh, time to stand again. He's gonna be late today again today, isn't he? You know, and that's how we can approach God in worship. Let's make sure that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Allow, allow ourselves to exult and rejoice in him. And don't worry about Statler and Waldorf over there. Don't worry about their criticisms as they're up there, as they're not worshiping God, as they're just going through the motions, as they're criticizing others, and mind you, bearing no fruit, just like Michael. Instead, let's just worship God fully. Like in Psalm 96, it says, the heavens, the earth, the fields, the trees, the seas, all of the world is rejoicing. Does that remind you of a song we sing this time of year? Mind you, it's not a Christmas song, but we sing it anyway. What is it? It's an Advent song. 
a time where we remember Christ's second coming at his first coming. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That's not receive him simply as a baby, but what? Let the earth receive her king. One of the later verses that we don't often always sing goes like this. It says, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so even in joy to the world, we're recognizing that not only is my body under a curse, but this whole world I'm living in is cursed. There's thorns, there's animals eating each other. But someday Jesus is coming back. This great God who created all things that we have cursed through sin, God is gonna come and he's going to redeem my body and he's going to redeem this entire earth, create a new heaven and a new earth far as the curse is found. No wonder we sing joy to the world. Our Lord has come. Friends, I pray that you will engage God in worship every time you come through these church doors. I pray that you engage God in worship and in singing, even just in the privacy of your home and in your car, because great is our God and greatly to be praised. Father, we thank you this morning as we are closing out this time. God, I pray that you would remind our hearts that the purpose of Christmas is worship. That you've not called us to experience nostalgic feelings. This time of the year is not even necessarily just made to make me glad that we make merry together. This time of year, Christmas is not about giving and receiving gifts. It's not about uh, having certain kinds of food. It's not about watching all the right Christmas movies in our list. It's not even about uh, us simply enjoying the fellowship that we have with family, because not all of us gets that. Some of us have lost family members this year. Can we still have a good Christmas? God, we know that you have called us to have a worshipful Christmas. Help us to ascribe to you, God, to give over to you the things that belong to you, glory and honor and strength. God, we give this all to you this morning as we pray. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.